I'm excited to uh, look at the two gifts, maybe three gifts, maybe one gift, depending how quickly I can get through them. I have three gifts in my notes. I'm planning on getting through two of them. I'm not confident I will. We're going to look at the gifts this morning of faith and mercy. And they have been, for me, a wonderful study. I love, I love looking at these gifts. So while you're waiting, and we're waiting for some of the parents to get back down, you can make your way to 1 Corinthians 12 will be the first one. And we'll go over to Romans 12 after that. If you would, while you're making your way there, I'm going to pray. Father, what a, what a morning, what truths we just sang. Not, not only great theological truths, but Father, great in their existential application. You are with us. They're not heady truths. They're not truths based on knowledge only. But it is the testimony of countless millions of Christians that You are with us that You do work for us, that You do answer prayer, that You do help us, that You are faithful, that You are merciful, and we know it. We've come, as the psalm says, and tasted and seen these things, not only come to know these things. So Father, as we examine these gifts of faith and mercy, Father, I see Your wisdom and why You give the church these gifts. One, because they're a reminder that You are powerful, You are overall. And secondly, Father, Your mercy is who You are. It is the very heart of God. And so, open these up to us, Lord. Um, encourage us with these gifts. Bless us with Your truth this morning. Bring us into deeper fellowship with You. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The gift of faith, 1 Corinthians 12... Paul identifies this gift as one of many gifts that the Spirit of God endows the church with. Now, if you're joining us and you've, you're not familiar with what we're doing, we are, the last several weeks, have been doing a study on the spiritual gifts and why that's important for the church. Because Paul told the church at Corinth, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. I want you to know how the Spirit of God has equipped you so that you might serve Him in strength, in His power, in fruitfulness. And so he lists a bunch of different gifts, both in 1 Corinthians 12 as well as Romans 12. And we've been making our way through them. So let's begin in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul writes this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now I want to remind you that all the gifts that we look at are aspects of who the Spirit of God is. They're not abstract things. They're not things that are apart from who He is. These reflect who He is to the church. Okay, They're manifestations of the Spirit. Verse 8, To one is given the Spirit of the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. And then here's ours this morning. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Now this gift might seem as a surprise to some, that faith is actually a spiritual gift. So we're going to labor to identify what it's not because you do need to make a distinction and there can result some confusion as to what this gift is. The Greek word is the same 
It's, it's pistis. It's what it is. It's faith. It, it literally means to be persuaded or, or persuaded of something. Um, and so that's what faith is. You are persuaded of X. You fill in the blank. In our case, what this gift is not, is not saving faith. Because the Scriptures make it clear that saving faith is common to every believer. You cannot be a Christian, in other words, apart from trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. So the gift of faith is not that. Saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, believing He suffered the penalty of death. That was due for your and I's sin. You see Him as your substitute and you've come to trust in Him that He's paid the penalty for your sin. That's the Gospel. That's our initiation into the Christian life. We recognize, I have sin in my life. I'm guilty of something. In most cases, many things. But God sent a provision for me in His Son. He paid the penalty, and I've come to trust that. It's what we read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you remember those passages, Paul said, we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourself. Okay? So saving faith is quite different. Abraham had this saving, justifying faith. When God told him, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to the nations, right? All these things. The Scripture says that Abraham believed God and was counted to his account as righteousness. That's saving faith. That's justifying faith. So God has given to each one of us a measure of saving faith so that when we exercise it, we will be saved from the guilt of our sins. That is the work of Christ. He trusts, we trust in Him. He saves us. So it's not saving faith, nor is it the faith by which we continue to walk after salvation. Paul said very simply to the Corinthian church, just as you began in Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. What does he mean? We began by faith. Now we walk by faith, not by sight. Jude said it this way, Jude verse 20, he encouraged that congregation, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So the faith that we daily walk in, that we're called to trust in Christ and daily in His promises, we grow in that kind of faith. We build ourselves up in that faith. We're refined in that faith. We're challenged in that faith. Abraham also had this kind of faith. Uh, Paul quotes it in Romans 4.19. I'll read it to you. Paul said, He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, being as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or he didn't grow weak in faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And then Paul adds this, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That kind of faith, again, every Christian is called to walk in. It's not like God has given only some people faith to walk in and not others. Every one of us is saved by grace through faith, and then every one of us is called to walk in faith with the Lord. Okay, So it's not saving faith, it's not walking by faith. Neither is this gift of faith something that keeps you from suffering. And I want to point that out because there's a misconception taught that if I just believe that God will deliver me, deliver me from suffering, somehow, if I muster up enough faith, that's what will happen. If you will, keep your finger... Well, you don't have to keep your finger. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Go right from 1 Corinthians. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 is, is what we kind of call the heroes of the faith chapter. Okay, 
where the writer of Hebrews is encouraging his audience, look at all these men and women who've gone before you in faith. They've trusted God. And because they've trusted God, there's been incredible things done in their life. Some were delivered from the sword. Some were delivered from foreign armies. Some were delivered from death, as was the case with Daniel. But not all of them were delivered from those things. And I want you to see this. Verse 36, 1136. These are still those who are of faith. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn, cut in half, sawn in two. Historically, that's said to be the prophet Isaiah was cut in half. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Now, if we were to stop there, some in the Christian church would say they didn't have faith. That's not the case. They endured those things because they had faith says the world was not worthy of them. Verse 38, they wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They didn't gain riches. They didn't gain homes. They didn't gain great things. They were destitute. They were homeless. They were afflicted. They were even killed. And they did it all in faith. So faith doesn't promise you safety from those things. The gift of faith is something different. I want to start looking at what this gift is. I like how John MacArthur said it. He said it this way, this is a special gift limited to certain Christians that involves intensive ability to trust God. It's an unusual capacity to believe God in the face of overwhelming obstacles. I'll add this definition. It is the gift given by the Spirit who endows these people with absolute confidence that God is going to work in a specific situation or specific calling. This faith is not something, in other words, that you can just muster up. You can't stir it up and create it within you. God gives it as a gift. It's either present or it's not present. Some people try, say this because some people try and frenzy this kind of faith up and whip it up. And if only I had more faith. That's not this at all. If God, through His Spirit, doesn't give it, you don't have it. You simply believe when He gives it. It's just there. It's the Spirit's sovereign will, as we've seen with all the other gifts. He chooses whom to give these gifts to. And He doesn't give these gifts to every person. So it is faith to believe God is going to do something specific. I.e., We're going to look at some examples such as George Mueller, who God called to open an orphanage. I want to actually quote George Mueller's own biography. By the way, you're going to laugh at me. I'm a nerd. I had to bring two of the books to quote. Um, But I I say, I, I point these out because I want you, the church, to start getting familiar with these men and reading their works. So I don't mind making a fool of myself if it draws you you all in. Um. George Mueller said this in his own diaries. He said, Today, it has been impressed on me to begin no longer merely to think about establishing an orphan house, but actually to begin making plans to do it. See, nowhere in Scripture could George Mueller open the Word of God and read from God, George, I want you to open an orphan house. 
but he had absolute confidence that is the ministry God was calling him to open, and he had absolute confidence God would provide every single dollar he needed to do it. It was a specific situation, a specific calling, and God gave him the faith to move forward without any worldly assurances. Um, I want to read something out of this is Hudson Taylor's uh, biography. Hudson Taylor, we're going to get to in a minute as well, but Hudson Taylor was a founder of the China Inland Mission. Uh, I, if there's any people I would love our church to read and get familiar with, it's Hudson Taylor and George Mueller. We actually have George Mueller's biography for sale in our Scattering Seed Works if you're interested in reading him. Here's how Hudson Taylor, who's a pioneer of this kind of faith, he was reading his, his New Testament. Mark 11.22 simply is translated in English, have faith in God. But the Greek says it differently, and he never caught on to it. The Greek literally translated says it this way, have the faithfulness of God. And as he meditated upon that truth, he saw a difference from simply believing God to holding the faithfulness of God in you. Here's what he says, how gladly would... Um, would Hudson Taylor have and increase his faith in God? If only he knew how. Have you ever been there? If only I knew how to have more faith in God. I'm not persuaded. I don't feel like I'm trusting. If only he knew how. But what he read seemed entirely different than this. It laid the emphasis on another side of the matter in a way he found surprisingly helpful. It was not have faith in your own heart, in your own mind, however you might get it, but simply hold fast or count upon His faithfulness. Don't muster up the faith in your own heart. You can't do it. What you need to see is hold His faithfulness near. He says this, different indeed uh, was this from one to the other. Not my faith, but God's faithfulness to me. You see the difference? The gift of faith looks beyond myself. It doesn't look to myself as the source. The gift of faith is the ability to see any obstacle and see past it. To see the God who is there. Just as we sang, just as Braden read in Romans 8, right? It doesn't see the fire as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, you want to throw us in the fire? Go ahead. We are persuaded God can deliver us from it. But even if He doesn't, we will not worship you. That's the gift of faith. They didn't see the obstacle. They didn't see the fire. They saw the God who's able to deliver. And they had absolute persuasion that He could do it. And what did they do? They went to the fire, not knowing if God would deliver them or not. And what did God do? He was in the fire with them. That's the gift of faith. One such missionary couple who worked with Hudson Taylor, I read their little biography this week, John and Betty Stam, they were martyred in China when uh, the Boxer Rebellion happened and China became communist in the early 1900s. They had been working in China at that point for many years. Um, they were killed, and, and their story is incredible. If you ever want to read it, read about John and Betty Stam. But here's what John Stam said before he went to China. I want you to hear his words. He says this, friends, the task with all its attendant difficulties is enough to fill our hearts with dismay if we look only to ourselves and our weaknesses. 
But the authority in our master's command to go forward should fill us with joy and the expectation of victory. He knows our weaknesses and our lack of supplies. He knows the roughness of the way and his command carries with it the assurance of all we need. Of course we want to be assured of our support. Who would want to go forward in any work, secular or religious, unless he can be reasonably assured that it will not be dropped for lack of funds? Incomes are failing. Men are losing employment. Bank accounts are being wiped out. Do we as Christian workers want to be sure of support? Then let us not put our trust in men or in any God-dishonoring method of raising funds for this work. These are not certain. We have it on the highest authority that the promise is of faith, he said, so that it might be sure. The faithfulness of God is the only certain thing in the world today. We need not fear the result of trusting Him. Now when you look at the history of missions especially, China Inland Mission, the orphan houses that George Mueller started, the Institute for Scriptural Knowledge, which is still in operation, they all began in faith. And guess what? They're all continuing today. Those works that begin in the flesh, guess what's happened to them? Crash and burn and fail. The China Inland Mission is one of the most important things we as a church can learn from because those men and women went forward in faith. And as we saw two weeks ago, the gift of giving, those super givers, right? C.T. Studd. You know what two ministries he gave to? His wealth? Mueller's Orphans? and the China Inland Mission, as well as a few others. Here Hudson Taylor and George Mueller had the gift of faith. They were absolutely trusting in God to supply. What did God do? He put it on the heart of this super giver, C.T. Studd, to supply their need, and he did it. And that is the common testimony of people who dare to trust God absolutely. Matthew 17.20, we read this verse and it seems amazing to us. It says this, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. We, we read that and we go, that seems crazy. Not to the person with this gift. Because they're not looking at the mountain, they're looking at the God who made it. And He can do all things. Nothing is impossible with Him. Matthew 21.22 Jesus said this, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now this is not as the faith healers talk about. It's not asking for money for myself. We're going to get to it in a second. Usually it's asking for the glory of God to be revealed and the ministry to go forward. And it will never be denied. I titled this gift, Planting Mulberry Trees in the Ocean. Because of this verse, Luke 17.6, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You see, the gift of faith is a gift where you are enabled to trust God perfectly and absolutely. It goes beyond the weaknesses of your flesh. It goes beyond the limitations of men, and it taps in to the perfection of God. We see this very closely related in the Gospels to people when they were healed, healing faith. Matthew 9 Familiar story to you, the woman who had the flow of blood for nine years and she spent all of her money on doctors who couldn't heal her but would gladly take her money. She was never healed. She hears of Jesus, hears what He's been doing, and when the crowd's pressing in on Him, she comes up behind and touches His garment believing that she would receive healing. And she did. And Jesus told her, your faith has made you well. Right? Right? Why? Because her faith was in 
God. She was absolutely persuaded of who Jesus said he was. I want to read something from George Mueller. I I don't at all advocate the the prosperity gospel, the, the name it and claim it stuff. But I don't discredit the fact that God does answer prayers for healing as well. I think He does and I think He can. I want to read something from George Mueller's autobiography because he, he had this right. He says this, God was also faithful to heal my physical infirmities. One Saturday afternoon I broke a blood vessel in my stomach and I lost a considerable quantity of blood. Immediately after I prayed, I began to feel better. And two brethren called on me to ask what arrangements should be made for a preacher at the Sunday service. I'd be afraid to get up and preach well as well. He says, God's going to give me strength to preach. I'll preach. So he gets up, he preaches. They say, okay, you need to go home and rest. He says, no, i got to preach the afternoon service. So he stayed and preached the afternoon service. Okay, you need to go home and rest now. No, i got to preach the evening service. So he stayed and preached the evening service. This is what he says concerning this. He says, do not attempt to imitate me in this matter if you do not have the faith to do so. But if you do, it will most assuredly be honored by God. I often pray with sick believers until they were restored. And when I ask the Lord for the blessing of bodily health, my request almost always is granted. In answer to my prayers, I was immediately restored from a bodily infirmity which had afflicted me for a long time and has never since returned. So is it always God's will for you to be healed of infirmities? No. And sometimes He doesn't answer that prayer. Why? Because there's a different lesson we might need to learn. Right? Sometimes we need to learn in suffering patience and faith in God. So He doesn't remove it from you. Because it would be more beneficial for you to grow in that than to be healed. But you often hear of people, especially in poor countries, people who are destitute, these are accounts missionaries share all the time. They have no one else. There's one, one man I read about, a Vietnamese pastor, communist country, where there's not many churches at all, nor are there many Bibles, even less people who can teach it to the people there. And he was struck by a bus. The people of the church ran around him and prayed that God might heal him. And he did. Why? Because there was not another person who could teach them. There's not another person with a Bible. And the hospital was over 150 miles away. In America, if that were to happen to me, I'd probably be laying up in the hospital still. Bower Duane would be filling in. Why? Because God might be teaching you as a body a different lesson and me a different lesson than what it did for them. So this isn't always the case that people are healed. But you can't discredit that it does happen. And it's closely associated in the Gospels with this gift of faith. This gift is vital, in other words, to any church or work of God. As we planted Waypoint, one of the things I was most fearful of is that we would move forward in unbelief, not trusting the Lord. Because it would be sure to fail then. Absolutely be sure to fail. I knew as a pastor that if I'm not sound in faith in this I will lead you to ruin in it. Without faith, the Scriptures tell us, it is impossible to please God. So this gift is a vital gift to the church. Not only is faith necessary for the fruitfulness of any work of God, God often gives people with this type of faith, He often equips people with this type of faith when new or groundbreaking work is about to start. 
Hudson Taylor went to China when inland China, with its countless billions of people, had never even been penetrated. There was missionaries on the coast, and that's as far as they got. He wanted to get to inland China, where the billions were dying without the Lord. And so he went. I want to read a portion out of George Mueller's biography of what he says. This is so, so good. 74 and 75. Okay. He makes a good point here. If you didn't know George Mueller's story, um, you'll be familiar with it hopefully after this Sunday service. Here's what he says. Some individuals are in professions which they cannot continue with a good conscience, but they fear leaving their profession lest they become unemployed. I long to strengthen their faith by proving that the promises from the Word of God of His willingness and ability to help all those who rely upon Him are true. I know that the Word of God ought to be enough, but by giving my brothers visible proof of the unchangeable faithfulness of the Lord, I might strengthen their faith. You see what he just said? He he said the truth that Hudson Taylor got wind of. Holding the faithfulness of God, not my faith in Him, God's faithfulness to me. That's what I trust in. That's what he just said. I want to be the servant of the church in in this particular point in which I had obtained mercy in being able to take God at His Word and to rely upon it. He goes on, this seems to me best done by establishing an orphan house, something which could be seen by the natural eye if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith obtained without asking any individual the finances for establishing and carrying on this orphan house might strengthen the faith of the children of God, I will gladly do it. It would also be a testimony to the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. But here's what he concludes. This is the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. I certainly desire to be used by God to help the poor children and to train them in the ways of God. But what was his primary object? The primary object of the work is that God would be magnified because the orphans under my care will be provided with all they need through prayer. And faith. Everyone will see that God is faithful and hears our prayers. And you know what Hudson Taylor was able to raise simply by prayer and faith, not telling a single soul what he needed? Over $250 million. Not one soul did he ever tell he needed the funds. And it came pouring in. Why? Because God hears his prayers and provided. It's the gift of faith. It was not for George Mueller's self-aggrandizing or enriching, right? He used it solely on others. And anything extra George Mueller had that came in, guess what he'd do with it? Send it to missionaries. Often the China Inland Mission. He supported thousands and thousands of people. So the gift of faith is a vital gift. It is a gift of God for specific situations to which a church or body might be called to. I pray that God gifts people in this church with this gift. I do not want to be walking in our own wisdom. I do not want to be walking in our own strength. I do not want to be making my own plans if the Lord's not in it. We must have people who are willing to absolutely trust God, even when things seem impossible. Hudson Taylor's statement was this to any missionaries who had come to him. He said, there's three stages in the work of God. First is impossible. Second is dangerous. Third is done. That's how he saw it. He did not see the obstacle. He saw what God would do. He saw the God behind it. That is the gift of faith. 
I pray for us that we have many people willing to trust the Lord. Absolutely. Do I want to attempt the gift of mercy? Yes, I do. The other gift I want to talk about this morning is found in Romans chapter 12. The gift of mercy. It's Romans 12.8. Paul's pointing out several gifts. In verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes, we've looked at both those, in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal. Then he ends it this way. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, This gift, as several of the others, such as wisdom and knowledge, are general things that all Christians should aspire to grow in, right? We are all to grow in knowledge. We are all to grow in wisdom. We are all to exercise mercy. But there are some people, and you've probably met some, who are supernaturally equipped as merciful people. I love this gift. In fact, it is the only gift in all of Scripture that has its own beatitude connected with it. Blessed are the merciful. Why? They shall receive mercy. Synonyms for this word include compassion or pity. It's a term that characterizes the very heart of God. God is compassionate. He's pitiful. He looks on us with pity. I want to distinguish what mercy is compared to what grace is. Grace is given to people in relation to their guilt and their sin. Mercy is given to people in relation to to the misery of their circumstances. Does that make sense? In God's grace, God takes care of the sin issue in our life. In God's mercy, God is taking care of the mess we might find ourselves in. I've heard it said this way, grace is getting what you don't deserve, while mercy is not getting what you do. Right? This is beautiful. The one who has this gift of mercy is empowered by God's grace to come alongside and sympathize, have compassion with those who might be suffering, with those who are poor, with those who are sick, with those who are destitute, with the widows and orphans. Sometimes you give, as a mercy show, you give them something tangible to help ease their suffering. But in every case, the mercy showers entrust their hearts. They give their hearts to the person. They enact in service to someone with a compassionate heart. The mercy shower is able to tap in and not simply do a deed, but do it with compassion. I love this. Um, You find this everywhere in the Scriptures. As I said, this is part of God's very character. Um, I want to turn to Luke 10, though, and read this account. You guys know this account. It's the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Good Samaritan, but it illustrates what mercy is and what God desires from us. This is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, and who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Of all people you'd expect to help this man, the priest, this man was without compassion. And he passed by. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite. The Levites were of the priestly order as well. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, you'd expect a Levite to help this man in his distress. Nope. They were religious without mercy. So, verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, He had compassion. The Samaritan would be the least likely of people you'd expect to have compassion on a Jew. He went up to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him what? Mercy. Jesus once again reiterated, you go and do likewise. That's mercy. This man needed help in his circumstance. And the mercy shower comes alongside and takes care of him. That's mercy. Doesn't deserve it. Didn't ask for it. But the mercy shower shows the need and is moved with compassion to help. And he helps. This gift of mercy is in stark contrast, really, to the nature of man. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us like vengeance. (laughs) We see evil in the world, right? And we have a strong sense of justice, perhaps. And often these people, these mercy showers, we view them as compromisers, right? Because they didn't get what they deserved. The mercy shower never sees that. If God were to look at us and deal with us as we deserved, the Psalms say, would any of us survive? No. None of us get what we deserve. None of us do. Maybe one day we will, but as we live right now, every one of us has sin. Every one of us may be in sin right now, and God is not giving us presently what we deserve. He's withholding wrath, the Scripture says. Why? Because He doesn't desire any to perish but all to come to repentance. Why? Because He is merciful. There's an interesting account in Exodus 34, verse 5-7. through I'm going to read these verses to you and then I'm going to explain the context because it puts it in a different picture. In Exodus 34, 5-7, this is what it says, "...the Lord descended in the cloud and stood before Moses." And he proclaimed his name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now the context of this makes that passage incredible. You see, Moses had already descended one time down the mountain with the stone tablets in his hand. And he saw the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf. And in Moses' anger, what did Moses do? He threw the tablets down and broke them, ground up the calf, had them drink it. 
You remember the account. But now Moses has two broken tablets and he has to go back up the mountain. And what does God identify himself as this time? I'm merciful, Moses. I'm slow to anger. I'm compassionate. You see the context, right? People who often struggle with thoughts of anger or bitterness or who have trouble forgiving probably don't have this gift of mercy. (laughs) Their prayer needs to be, Lord, give me mercy, right? Help me to be more merciful that I might give it to others. I want to pray very often, take this desire for revenge from my heart because I find it there. Job's friends are a good example of people who don't have the gift of mercy. You remember what happened to Job. He lost all of his property. He lost all of his children. Even his own wife said, you need to curse God and die. And then Job's friends come and comfort him. One friend accused Job of being a liar. Another friend accused Job of being a hypocrite. And all the friends said that God was punishing him for some sin that he committed. It got so bad that Job finally told his comforters, miserable comforters are you all. That's some of us right here. But not the mercy shower. Not so with people who have this gift. Paul said, show mercy with cheerfulness. This will be odd to you. The the Greek word for cheerfulness in Romans 12.8 is hilaros. We get our word hilarious from it. Now it seems strange. Why would Paul pair hilarious mercy when you're meeting people in their suffering? Be merciful hilariously. Why would God say, or why would Paul say this? Some people cannot be happy or joyful when somebody receives mercy. Have you seen those people? They're angry, right? When someone is given mercy. But mercy showers have joy in their heart when mercy is exercised. In other words, it makes them happy. (laughs) They love when people don't get what they deserve. Why? Because they see God acting like God. Not giving us, not treating us as we deserve. It causes their heart to have joy. It's a thrill. It's a delight to them. They're giddy, they're happy because mercy is being given. Mercy often in Scripture goes hand in hand with forgiveness. Right? When you understand what it is you've been forgiven of, you take joy when others are extended that same grace and mercy. Having been forgiven much, we should love much. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love, kindness. The word in the Hebrew there is mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against your neighbor in your heart. And as I said earlier, Matthew 5, 7, it's the only one of all the gifts given to the church that beatitude is pronounced upon. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. How badly the church needs mercy showers. We have many people who are suffering weekly sometimes with various ailments, whether it's physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, There are all kinds of needs, and mercy showers are those people who rush to the scene to take the load and carry it. 
They're compassionate. They see pity instead of judgment. They give way to wrath and let love reign in their heart. It is the very heart and reflection of God. When mercy stores are exercising their gift, you know what it does to the church? It brings us back to that point of, man, God is gracious. We see the gentleness of the Lord when mercy showers are exercising this gift in the church. We see the forgiveness of God when mercy showers are exercising this gift in the church. And we want to conform more to it. None of us deserve what we have. That's grace. But none of us are receiving what we should. That's mercy. And we can thank God for that. In fact, we can sing to God about that, right? We're going to sing about His mercy. If you guys want to stand, I'll invite the worship team back up and I'll pray. Father God, what precious gifts the gift of faith and the gift of mercy are to Your church. I pray, Lord, that You equip many in this body with the gift of faith and with the gift of mercy, especially as we are moving forward, Lord, seeking Your provision, Your hand to provide our next place of worship. Father, give us faith to trust You absolutely, that You know our needs, that You care for us, and that You will undoubtedly provide what we need in a way that only You can. And Father, help us to be merciful people, compassionate. As Jesus ministered to the thousands and thousands who followed Him, the Scripture says He looked upon them with compassion because they were as sheep without a shepherd and he was moved with pity. And so he gave of himself and gave of himself and constantly took their burdens upon himself. Father, you are merciful. And as we're about to sing, our sins are many. And they've caused misery in our life. So you give grace to deal with sin and you give mercy to deal with the misery we've created. Father, help us to receive that truth that You care for us even when it's self-inflicted wounds. You're merciful. You have compassion. For those of us who are struggling with sin in this church, Father, who are struggling with unbelief, who are struggling with whatever it might be, Father, show Your mercy to them that You care for them, that You provide for them, that You do not delight in these things. You seek to bless Father, that we might stand in the freedom of the gospel of your grace and mercy and its truth. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.